Hello, my name is Sally Fayez and you're listening to the news chat on the road to open science. This podcast is an initiative of the Utrecht Academy with the support of the open science community Utrecht. In the news chat of this month, October 2018, Barbara Freide and Jeroen Bosman talked with me about Plan S and the fourth 2018 conference in Montreal. My name is Barbara Vrede. I am a recovering scientist and I'm currently working at the University Library as a subject specialist for science. And my name is Jeroen Bosman. I work at the University Library as well and I'm serving the geoscience community in this university. So, but what's your connection with open science and open access publishing in specific? Well, it officially it's my role to promote open access, open science, um, but I'm very much engaged with that myself, even if it wasn't an official policy, uh, because I think these are just very important, crucial things for uh, for science uh, in, in, in society to, to remain relevant. Yeah, as a researcher, I was also um, involved in, in open access, and it was one of the things that uh, drew me to my current position. Um, one of the things that became clear to me quite early on is that open, being open makes you a better researcher. Barbara and Jeroen are also members of the Open Science Community Utrecht. Last month, Barbara presented Plan S in our Open Science Cafe in Utrecht. I asked her if she can summarize her presentation for us. Can you tell us what is Plan S? I can't. <laughs> the, the Can you try? <laughs> the reason I can't is because one of the problems with Plan S is that it's very vague. Right now, Plan S is a list of 10 principles. The goal of the Plan S is to make a big step towards open science. Uh, I have the main principle here, which says, after the 1st of January 2020, Scientific publications on the results from research funded by public grants provided by national and European research councils and funding bodies must be published in compliant open access journals or on compliant open access platforms. So that's the main core principle. Compliant open access journals to them are gold open access journals only. That means that they must not be hybrid. They must be funded only in the, from the publication side, not from the reader side. Everyone should be able to read them and everything in that journal at all times. And of course, the main uh, reason for this and the main reason that Plan S is a thing we're talking about at all is that this comes from the funders themselves. And they're speaking for the public, essentially, who are paying the funders to pay the researchers people who use their tax money, and that tax money ends up in, um, on research. Um, obviously, research that has been funded by the public should be accessible to that public who paid for it, and that's what they're trying to enforce um, in this way. Why is it so big? Why, why Planet is so big suddenly? Is it because the number of organizations that have supported it, or is it because of the strictness of the principles? The reason I think it's so big is because the because the people who are um, talking or the people who have started this coalition are the big research funders in 11 European countries. Um, I think on a global scale it is not huge. I think the research that they're controlling is estimated to be about 4%, but these are not small players. There have been also some resistance, I mean, from week one I heard that 
course, the publishers all announced that Plan S will change their model for good and there must be something. But also from the researcher side, there were discussions on, uh, on implementation of Plan S. Can you summarize or highlight some of the discussions which were raised in reaction to Plan S? Yes, I can. I actually have been quite active tracking those and, and, and looking at all those blog posts and tweets and, 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 and what have you. And there has been a surprisable amount of, of reactions from researchers, but also from societies and, and funders themselves. And focusing on the researchers, um, there have been some very uh, critical reactions. And that this is, of course, because it, it's fundamentally changing what researchers are doing right now. Even if they publish open access, it is mostly in hybrid journals. And if that is ruled out because of these principles, that is a big change for them. Um, and there are, are more things that researchers are critical about. They say, well, this sort of limits our choice. And some say it even might limit their academic freedom. This, this is a big discussion, and, and many people have, dif have different opinions and interpretations of what academic freedom is. But that, that's another important, uh, important point. And it depends very much also on the, on the field that people are in. But you see, for instance, that researchers that are in fields where society journals are important, that they are very critical because they say these societies have these hybrid journals and they use that income also for additional services to their members. And if you rule out hybrid, that means that those societies that can be very influential but also important and people feel an attachment to them in some fields, that they will be... Uh, they won't have this income anymore. Um, so that's that's why it's a heated debate. Is that also because there is a limit on the APC that they can charge? But there are also some people discuss even if you limited the APC to let's say thousand or thousand five hundred euros, then not everybody can pay. So there are other people say that for the for the equality of access to these publishing services, the APCs should also be scrapped. But then the question is that how the societies will survive who publish these journals. Is that the only one or are there also big for-profit publishers that are hybrid for other reasons and people are very uh, uh, keen to publish in these outlets and this will keep them from publishing? Yes, of course, many of these journals currently support hybrid publishing and also outside the, the societies people are attached to their to their journals this is just just tradition they have been publishing in these journals for years and the status of a journal is very important to them whether it's the quality of the peer review or the way editors handle their submissions or whether it's just simply the impact factor that is important to them is is difficult to say that that depends on on, on individuals even um, but that is why people don't move that easily to other journals so that is why also the uh, Planes, the people behind Planes say, well, what we would like to see is have these publishers that publish these journals that people are attached to change their journals. So what they call flip their journals to really become a fully open journal. Um, but then you are right. There is also this discussion that if you change them and have a high APC, that, that's, that's not necessary, but if you have a high APC, that means that some people that are, that are not well-funded have have, will have difficulty publishing in those journals if there is no waiver or something. I think it's important al to also to realize that even a low APC is actually quite still a lot of money. 
So even if we have a considerably low APC, like a thousand euros, that is a salary for a PhD student, a monthly salary for a PhD student in, uh, for example, Portugal. Um, so this is important to realize when we're talking about APCs, um, it's become sort of the norm to accept an APC of 2,000 euros, but that can be a problem for publication for a lot of researchers in Europe, but also outside of Europe. There are publishers that, that have APCs of 500 dollars uh, or euros, and they say we, c we can be perfectly profitable with that. But these APCs also run up to uh, 5,000 or even more. And this also has to do with the, the status of the journal, what, what publishers are just able to ask. Most people interpret this, this plan as, okay, plan as equates to asking APCs for publishing. But that, that's not necessary. There are other models that are compatible with plan as. Um, for instance, some form of green publishing, where the author him, him or herself um, archives the publication, that, that is possible within Planes, and also what they call diamond publishing, so where you have no APC and no subscription, it's free for the reader and for the author. Those, those journals are already out there, uh, it's just that many of them don't have the status yet that authors require or, or authors want to see. On 1st of November there will be a discussion in the Netherlands on announcement and implementation of Plan S. And I think this discussion will go on. Uh, and we probably will have a fixed section in our new chat for the next couple of episodes uh, dedicated to Plan S because this has huge impact on the work process of the scientists as we know it now. Um, Jeroen already mentioned the diamond publishing uh, model. And that's actually one of the possible uh, very good outcomes of Plan S. So this Can you shortly say what is Diamond? So Diamond Publishing would be, uh, or Diamond, uh, Diamond Access, I'm not sure what you call Diamond it. Journals. Diamond Journals. Diamond Journals are journals that uh, are free for the reader and for the author. Uh, they are funded in a different manner, maybe in the similar way that research institutions are currently funded, so by competitive funding, um, there are different possibilities, maybe by associations with um, big funders or with universities, um, but they, um, that way they guarantee that they are accessible to all researchers and accessible to all readers. And one of the, um, uh, one of the risks of Plan S that uh, many people have been pointing at is the that this shifts completely to the pay-to-publish model, and that is very dangerous. Um, another risk would be that um, by enforcing Plan S uh, in its worst possible form, um, European research would be excluded from collaborations, because, for example, um, if every Dutch or other European researcher um, has to uphold the Plan S principles. Um, however, that means they cannot publish in Nature because Nature is hybrid. Then perhaps someone from Harvard would be unlikely co to collaborate with them, and that's obviously not something that we would want. Although there was uh, an article in Times Higher Education today that China and America and uh, Canada also are taken on board from Plan S. There are discussions going on. So maybe next time we talk about the involvement of the global uh, society in Plan S. But you were saying about Diamond articles. So yeah, so Diamond uh, publishing is, I think, honestly, that is the only good way out. 
Um, shifting to a purely pay-to-publish gold model is in fact the worst possible nightmare of Plan S uh, implementation. So this week, a, um, an open letter uh, appeared from the young academies in Europe, and that is their negative scenario. They, they actually, it's a, I recommend reading it. I, I think you should put a, a link in the notes. Um, and it has two scenarios, a bleak scenario, which essentially puts all of the implications of uh, the shift to the gold pay-to-publish model, and a more positive scenario where we're talking about diamond journals, uh, maybe comp competition for funding from journals where the publisher is disconnected from the editorial side and essentially publishers become a service that gets paid but it's on a much more competitive scale than it is right now. Right now they have way too much power. And by getting an editor in a position where they apply for funding and, and then can use the services of established publishers to get their journals out, you essentially also ensure quality. And this is obviously a danger with the gold open access model as well, uh, where the incentive will be on publishing quantity over quality. This is one of the reasons why predatory open access is so prevalent and also so dangerous, uh, because the journals no longer have incentives to produce the best quality science. They only have incentives to publish, period. And that's obviously not what we want. Yeah, but a final thing about Plan S is that it's, it's happening in a very tight tight frame. Um, they want to have the implementation of these these principles, so that really work it out in, into into more detail by the end of the year, and perhaps also do some form of, of consultation because that hasn't happened on those principles yet. So this is really going in in, in a sort of a rush. So they they don't want to to, to lose momentum in that. And another very important thing about Plan S is that it also has these broader goals that's not in the principles, but in the preamble, if you read them, we'll put it in, in, in the notes, where they also say that this can only happen and become a success if we also change the reward and, and, and assessment system, because otherwise people will still be judged by publishing in all those same journals. If you want to know more about the rollout of Plan S in the Netherlands, then join the discussion meeting organized by the Royal Dutch Academy of Arts and Sciences on 1st of November in Amsterdam. Hieron has also been to the latest Force 11 conference in Montreal. Together with Bianca Kramer, they have presented a session and a poster on the criteria one can use when choosing open science tools and platforms. And he tells us about the event. Force 2018 is a conference of an organization called Force 11 um, that was started in 2011, as the name indicates. And this is really a sort of community of communities uh, around scholarly communication, so not only open access. It started actually as, um, as a conference called Beyond the PDF. So these were really people looking at applying all the things, all the magic of the internet and of digitization to scholarly communication, which was really always dragging this long heritage of the print centuries uh, behind it and really based on, on print ideas. So they wanted to modernize scholarly communication. And of course, over the years, open access and open science and things like that have become very important in that. So they organized this, this conference every one or two years. And the last one was a few weeks back in, uh, in Montreal, um, where we had some nice discussions and, and presented ourselves on uh, how, to, how to really, if you want to do open science, how to 
choose the tools that you use to support your open workflow. So can you tell us some of the highlights of this conference? The real highlight is really that people that are at that conference come from so many different backgrounds. So you have here in the same room, you've got funders, you've got publishers, you've got tool builders and technologists, you've got researchers, always a lot of librarians, they are always there, um, talking to each other and sort of most of the time leaving behind uh, their affiliation. So they talk about bring making scholarly communication more efficient, more fair, better working. And so that's very nice to have these people talk to each other. A few of the highlights were, I think, called to make the, the infrastructure that we have for open science to make that also an open infrastructure so that we don't use all these closed platforms but really use open source platforms and also use technology that, that is really modular so that if some organization wants to have some kind of platform that they can just pick the different modules and very easily put that together. Um, and there are some organizations that, that are really working on make, making this happen. One of them is the um, Joint Open Science Roadmap, uh, Joint Roadmap for Open Science Tools, sorry. That is really a number of, I, I think some 30 organizations building these, these platforms and tools and making them work together but having them openly available for everyone, so free and open source. And there's another one which, which is called uh, Coco, and, and they also produce these open source tools or modules of tools, actually. Um, so, so, that, so that was really the highlight, uh, the highlight for me. And uh, you also presented your research. Can you tell us about your research, Jeroen? Yes, we, ha we have been looking at, uh, at, at tools that researchers use over a few years already, not only at Open Tools, but just all tools that support their workflow throughout all those phases of, of what researchers do. Um, but for this conference, we really looked at if you want to build an open workflow and if you want to use open tools for that, which ones do you choose and which ones are available out there? So we have this huge list of, of 600 or 700 tools that, that's openly available. Put that in the notes as well. If you are a researcher and you want to do open science, do you just want your tool or your platform that you use to be free? Or do you also want it to be open source so that any other organization can use that for free and, can, and build on that? Or do you want that platform really, are you really very perhaps ethical person? Do you want the platform to be stakeholder governed? Do you want it to be non-profit? Do you want everything in that platform or tool, so all the data, to be openly licensed so that, that it's guaranteed that people can take their data out and others can build on that? So that, that's a number of different questions that you can ask yourself when you are selecting a tool. Um, and it, it we, so, we, so we built, uh, we had a session and we built a really a, a poster that people could not just only look at but really use. So we built a number of switches in the poster and we put in our laptop and that didn't work because it fell down so it was broke. So uh, we have to buy a new laptop, that, that's another point. Um, so people could really just flick these switches for open source and open data and stakeholder government, etc and then see the result of which tools for which phases of their workflow remain available. So they could just say, well, uh, I at least want, to be, want it to be free, and then a few of these tools just re are removed from their workflow. And then they say it, it must be open uh, or stakeholder governed, and then a lot of tools disappear from what, what's, what's then still available. 
but what is important is to realize that some of these things that I mentioned are very important for the researchers themselves. So if you want to go back to what you did a few years ago, and that's on a platform that's closed, you can't reuse your own stuff, let alone that others can reuse that, that, that stuff. Or if you see that a platform becomes more closed because there's just a commercial uh, a company behind that that can do anything with your stuff, then you've got a problem. You've seen, you see that, for instance, right now with the platform SSRN, which is a preprint platform run by Elsevier, that recently introduced that people who want to read the preprints have to make an account. Now, that might be a small step, but it, for instance, makes it difficult for machines to read. It, it just put an extra barrier there, and there is a little tiny button where people click get access without making an account. But so they are really want to have your user data and also profit from that. And that, that's, again, a kind of principled stance, but it's also important for yourself, I think. No, I just wanted to say that um, as a researcher, I think it's very important to realize that there are so many tools and that they're available during the entire workflow uh, of the scientific process. And I think that is one of the, the great thing that Jeroen uh, Bianca's uh, research has done, is that it shows that you do, in fact, have that choice. And they, they, they put a massive spotlight on each of those choices that you can make in every step of your workflow, that there are so many options out there. Um, and I think it's actually, um, I'm very curious to actually see that tool. So I was wondering if you guys are going to make an online version of your poster. Of course, the poster itself, the session, all the stuff is online. It's in Zenodo. It's openly licensed, free for everyone to use. And the poster also has this, uh, this tool attached to it. And you can do that right now. You can go in and flick those switches and see what tools are left for you. Built mostly, again, you already mentioned her by, uh, by Bianca, who also lost her laptop. Um, so she's, she's heavily in, in, in involved in that. But it, it's available. People can go there and try it for themselves right now. And this brings us to the end of our first news chat on the Road to Open Science podcast. We will tweet the links to the resources and documents mentioned in the podcast. You can engage directly with Barbara Iron on Twitter. And don't miss our episode 5 in the series. I talked to Cameron Nalon about taking collective action and the lessons we can learn from the political economy of commons. You can get in touch with us on Twitter and let us know what you think of the podcast. Our Twitter handle is at sign R2OS podcast with a numeric 2. This podcast is made possible by the Utrecht Academy and with the support of Open Science Community Utrecht. Thanks go to Barbara Yiron who helped me put this new chat together. From me, Sanlifaez, thanks for listening.